Hello and welcome to part 2 of episode 44 of Pay-Per-View. I was going to include this as part of part 1 and it just be one whole episode, but it runs to an hour, so I've decided to make it part 2. And it's on the subject of health. This is in the Daily Mail. How fake medical news is seriously damaging our health. From vaccines and heart pills to cancer drugs and diets, as experts report a rise in misinformation online, a special investigation tackles the dangerous myths threatening our health. We are living in an era of fake news, false, often sensational information spread under the guise of legitimate reporting. The term almost unheard of until recently is perhaps most strongly associated with President Trump, who uses it to dismiss pretty much any allegation thrown at him. But it is not just in politics where the lines between truth and lies are increasingly blurred. In almost every medical sphere, from vaccines and heart health to cancer drugs and diet, experts have reported a huge increase in misinformation online, which at best obfuscates the truth and at worst contradicts it entirely. Professor Heidi Larson, a public health expert at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, describes fake health news as bad science, often spread by those who capitalise on doubts over standard therapies to make a profit from books, supplements and alternative services. To add to this, complex scientific research is often poorly translated in the social media sphere while legitimate sources of information are mixed up with quackery. Well, some of it will be quackery, but some of it will be credible. A recent study from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology shows we are 70% more likely to share falsehoods on social media than facts. This is because nonsense stories are intrinsically novel and so prick our interest. Well, some of us do our own research. The article goes on. Public Health England told the Mail on Sunday it was concerned about the amount of health-related fake news online. Meanwhile, the government is expected to publish a white paper later this year on reforms to internet and social media laws. This is urgently needed. Half of us admit to turning to social media rather than medical professionals for advice on health problems. We need to do more to tackle fake news online means we need to do more to stop people seeing credible information which challenges the official narrative. Or they might actually become aware the world's not like we're telling them it is. The article goes on. Meanwhile, the government is expected to publish a white paper later this year on reforms to internet and social media laws. This is urgently needed. Half of us admit to turning to social media rather than medical professionals for advice on health problems. And just last week, a survey revealed a 9,000% rise in the past three years in internet searches relating to serious symptoms. Technology giants may at last have recognised their responsibilities. Google, Facebook and Twitter bosses last month signed a pledge to fight the spread of fake news. Google also claims to prioritise high quality results from authoritative sources for health queries. That's an important point and that's why these Silicon Valley giants are so focused on censorship. Half of us admit to turn into social media rather than medical professionals for advice on health problems. That's an important point, and that's why these Silicon Valley giants are so focused on censorship. The idea is to gain a near monopoly. The last figure I saw for Facebook users was around 2.5 billion in a world of around 7.5 billion. Gain a near monopoly so virtually everyone sees or hears the information circulated on your platform, either through using it themselves or someone telling or showing them. Then, once you've got that near monopoly, then start to censor anything outside the official narrative. And that's what we're seeing now. I've talked about the different ways they're censoring in episode 27, and we've seen nothing yet. The article goes on. And just last week, a survey revealed a 9,000% rise in the past three years in internet searches relating to serious symptoms. Technology giants may at last have recognised their responsibilities. Google, Facebook and Twitter bosses last month signed a pledge to fight the spread of fake news. Google also claims to prioritise high quality results from authoritative sources for health queries. I've talked about this before. Google are pushing down search results from alternative sources circulating information challenging the official narrative. It's nothing to do with helping people find better information and everything to do with controlling perception by controlling the information people see and hear, which forms perception. The article goes on. But a quick Google search does not install much faith. Type in cancer cures and what you get. A Wikipedia page followed by a website advocating the benefits of juices. 
Some fake health news is fairly easy to spot, yet there are a number of stories with little foundation in fact that seem to grow, evolve and take on a life of their own online, gaining ever more believers. We asked Cancer Research UK and some of the nation's top health experts who are becoming increasingly concerned about the trend to help us identify some of the key areas where misinformation is rife. And in the first of a two-part special report, we expose some of the most startling examples of fake news that may, if you believe them, put your health at serious risk. Fake news. Plastic bottles cause cancer. This misinformation can in part be traced to a viral email that first appeared in 2004 and has now been shared hundreds of millions of times, claiming to be a cancer update from John Hopkins Hospital in the US. The email warned that freezing or heating plastic packaging released cancer-causing dioxins into food and drink. Versions of the warning later spread on Facebook, including rumours that singer Cheryl Crow had appeared on a US chat show and confirmed a breast cancer had been caused by drinking from plastic bottles. The post read, Cheryl Crow's oncologist told her, women should not drink bottled water that has been left in a car. The heat reacts with the chemicals in a plastic of the bottle which releases dioxin into the water. Dioxin is a toxin found in breast cancer tissue. Let everyone who has a wife, girlfriend, daughter know, please. But there is no such institution called John Hopkins Hospital. The world-renowned Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore does exist and issued a robust denial that it was linked to the email and are describing it as a hoax. It also said there was no good evidence that dioxins were even contained in plastic bottles. Cheryl Crow, meanwhile, has never publicly suggested that the cause of her illness was anything to do with plastic bottles. Sophia Lowe's health information manager at Cancer Research UK, says, In studies, plastic bottles have been exposed to high temperatures for a really long time, and even then, levels of chemicals that move into food or drink are still very low. The public would not be exposed to high risk levels. The article goes on. So the idea that plastic bottles cause cancer is entirely fake, yet versions of the original email continue to be reproduced and shared in social media posts. Similar claims widely repeated relate to a chemical that is used in plastic containers, bisphenol A, or BPA for short, infiltrating the food or drinks that are kept inside them. BPA, it has been said, interferes with the body's sex hormones and is linked to breast and prostate cancers, obesity, diabetes and fertility problems. Cancer Research UK says this is also a myth. The European Food Safety Authority did a full scientific review of BPA in 2015 and decided there was no health risk at current BPA exposure levels. What is a health risk? How many times do official sources say no health risk there, no health risk there, no health risk there. I mean, according to these sources, what is a health risk? They seem to spend a lot of their time telling us what's not a health risk. So what is? Anything that comes from an official source relating to health needs to be seriously questioned. And I've said before, official safety levels are never real safety levels. They're levels at which the negative effect, the intended effect, ultimately makes an impact on the body without the effect being too pronounced or too obvious until it builds up and up and up and then there's more risk of a problem and there's an article here about chemicals in plastic now if you remember i said the article i'm reading now is in the daily mail well this article about chemicals in plastics linked to breast and prostate cancer from february this year is in the daily mail but i would imagine the author of this article is not aware of that and yet she's the one writing an article about information being communicated with lack of research this is the article gender bending chemicals found in plastic and linked to breast and prostate cancer are found in 86 percent of teenagers bodies almost 90 percent of teenagers have gender bending chemicals from plastic in their bodies according to a study bpa is found in plastic containers and water bottles on the inside of food cans and in teal receipts why are they on teal receipts? Because everyone touches them. And the cumulative effect for cashiers who touch these receipts multiple times a day, I can only imagine. The article goes on. The chemical used since the 1960s to make certain types of plastic mimics the female sex hormone estrogen and has been linked to low sperm counts and infertility in men as well as breast and prostate cancer. A study by the University of Exeter, whose researchers tested urine samples from 94 teenagers, found 86% had traces of BPA in their body. Well, if it's in plastics and tool receipts, it's no wonder, is it? 
Experts fear it is all but impossible to avoid the chemical given the widespread use of plastic packaging for food. The study's co-author, Professor Lorna Harris from the university's medical school, said most people are exposed to BPA on a daily basis. In this study, our student researchers have discovered that at the present time, given current labelling laws, it is difficult to avoid exposure by altering our diet. In an ideal world... In an ideal world, we would have a choice over what we put into our bodies. At the present time, since it is difficult to identify which foods and packaging contain BPA, it is not possible to make that choice. The European Chemicals Agency last year reclassified BPA as a substance of very high concern because of its probable serious effects on human health. Used to harden plastics, it has been linked to type 2 diabetes and heart disease as well as declining male fertility. Although it is found in teal receipts, sunglasses and CD cases, the main way people are exposed is through plastic packaging whose chemicals leach into food. As well as giving urine samples, the teenagers filled out food diaries. Even when they were told to avoid BPA in their diet for a week, there was no measurable form of the chemical within their bodies. This has been blamed on the widespread use of the chemical in food packaging, which the Daily Mail has highlighted in its Turn the Tide on Plastic campaign, launched in November and backed by the head of the UN's Environmental Programme. I'll read that again. The Daily Mail has highlighted the widespread use of the chemical in food packaging in its Turn the Tide on Plastic campaign, launched in November and backed by the head of the UN's Environmental Programme. You couldn't make it up, but with the mainstream media... You don't have to. The article goes on. Participants told researchers almost everything is packaged in plastic. One added, I find it really hard to know what foods I could eat. There is never a guarantee it is BPA free. The article goes on. Foods that appear safe because they are not sold in plastic packaging may still contain ingredients which have been exposed to the dangerous chemical. Highly processed products and fast food are believed to be a particular risk. Professor Tamara Galloway, lead author of the research, said we found that a diet designed to reduce exposure to BPA, including avoiding fruit and vegetables packaged in plastic containers, tinned food and meals designed to be reheated in a microwave and packaging containing BPA, had little impact on BPA levels in the body. The article goes on. Previous research has shown people risk higher exposure if they repeatedly use plastic bottles containing BPA because of wear over time and if they heat up plastic tubs containing the industrial substance in the microwave. While BPA is removed from the blood by the kidneys within hours, recent studies show it can stay in the body for up to 43 hours, suggesting it builds up in a person's fat. Although it is classified as an endocrine disruptor, meaning it can interfere with the hormone system of mammals, the European Food Safety Authority maintains humans' low exposure to the chemical is not harmful. What is harmful? Responding to the latest study published in the BMJ Open Journal, the British Plastics Federation said BPA is not found in most on-the-go water and soft drinks bottles. A spokesman said the British Plastics Federation supports the conclusions of the EFSA that at current exposure levels, plastics containing BPA pose no consumer health risks for any age group. But what you've got there is a authority on plastics taking advice from an official source. It's no wonder they would look to an official source. And then there's another section here. You might not have heard of BPA, short for bisphenol A, but it's everywhere. It's a synthetic chemical which is a building block for the clear plastics found in things like drinking bottles, CDs and DVDs, and plastic plates and cutlery. It's also the basis for the epoxy linings and metal food cans and is even found on the cash register receipts you're given at the shops. The problem with BPA is that it disrupts the normal hormonal processes that regulate the body. In particular, it mimics the female sex hormone estrogen and has been linked to health problems ranging from obesity to cancer, potentially even when we are exposed only to small amounts. Our hormones control most major bodily functions such as reproduction, development, behaviour and even intelligence, so it's vital they remain in balance. But experts fear that BPA... Experts fear that BPA... You might want to read the article, Joe McFarlane who wrote this article about fake news is apparently no health risk, as the European Food Safety Authority said it was. You might want to read this article in the very same paper, the Daily Mail, as the article you wrote. Experts fear that BPA, an imposter in the body, 
which goes into the bloodstream and imitates natural hormones can knock hormones out of kill. For that reason, they can wreak long-term havoc on our health, especially among the vulnerable. Children and pregnant women are particularly susceptible to damage from ingesting the BPA chemical because they have vast amounts of growth and developmental hormones coursing through their bodies. Worryingly, researchers have made strong associations between exposure to BPA when we are young and changes in behaviour, including disrupted brain development in children along with increased probability of childhood asthma. That said, the impact of early exposure to hormone-disrupting chemicals like BPA may not become apparent until much later in life. It can even affect future generations because it can have a damaging effect on female reproduction and has the potential to affect male reproductive systems. A large number of scientific studies have associated BPA with numerous health problems including early puberty, obesity, infertility, the inhibition of insulin, hyperactivity and learning disabilities. It has also been connected to a possible increased risk of breast and prostate cancer, heart disease and type 2 diabetes. That doesn't sound like no health risk to me, Joe McFarlane. You might want to do a bit of research before you go and write an article accusing others of doing no research. Researchers surmise that people all over the world of all ages are likely to have a measurable amount of BPA in their blood, urine and body tissue. Several government studies have detected BPA in large portions of the population, including 93% of the US population, aged 6 and older, and 99% of the population in Germany, aged 3 to 14. This new study into the high number of teenagers with BPA in their digestive system serves only to underscore that concern. This is an interesting point. This is what I said just now. Most worryingly, scientists have found that BPA could be harmful to humans at levels well below those considered safe by government regulatory bodies. It's exactly what I just said. You might pride yourself on always buying water bottles, for example, with a label that says BPA free, but don't get too excited. Given the public distrust of BPA, manufacturers have been replacing it with other chemicals from the diverse bisphenol family. Substances with names such as bisphenol AF, bisphenol B, C, E, F and S. The names are similar for a reason. Their chemical structures are practically identical and research has shown that many such replacements also exhibit hormone-disrupting activity. But they pose no health risk as the European Food Safety Authority says so. And they must know. She calls herself a journalist, you know. Fake news. This is the next one. She's trashing. Phone gives you brain tumours. Noel Edmonds may be mocked for his belief that electrosmog emitted from Wi-Fi, mobile phones and other electrical devices can harm health. Yet a recent Council of Research UK poll found that 3 in 10 people agree with him. Could fake health news online be at least partly to blame? A recent Facebook post by alternative health website and shop naturalhealth365.com, which has almost 30,000 followers, claims cell phone radiation can and does increase the risk of brain cancer, and the longer you use this wireless device, the greater the risk. Another article shared by a nutritionist with more than 110,000 Facebook followers claimed, headline style, 1990s cell phones linked to cancer in rat study finds the impact on humans is still unknown. The article is on. The theory is that electrical devices and power lines are surrounded by electromagnetic fields, or EMFs. They are. And this radiation causes illness, including brain cancer. Dr. Libby Darnell, described as a functional health coach on a well-being website, claims chronic EMF exposures have been linked with cancer, chronic fatigue, neurological and behavioural problems. A quick browse on YouTube throws up hundreds of similar posts. A video called Popcorn with Cell Phones, which appears to show three friends using radiation emitted by their mobile phones to pop corn kernels, went viral with more than 11 million views. So what is the truth, given that no mechanism by which EMFs could cause cancer or any other illness has ever been identified? Well, how do you know that? Joe McFarlane, when you've clearly not researched it yourself. Ah, but she's a journalist. In fact, high-quality studies have shown there is no evidence that this low-level radiation is in any way harmful to health. Bollocks. High-quality studies may well have shown that, but there's also a ton of evidence that shows the opposite. And a recent study on EMF submitted by overhead power lines and childhood leukemia found no increased risk, even for those living within 50 yards of one, while physicists have debunked the popcorn video as a physical impossibility. Later, a manufacturer of Bluetooth headset devices admitted the whole thing had been a marketing ploy. Well, this quote from Dr. Ronald B. Herberman, founding director of the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute, 
Vice-Chancellor of Cancer Research at University of Pittsburgh and the first head of a National Cancer Institute-funded cancer centre to speak out on the risks from cell phones, says a disservice has been done in inaccurately depicting the body of science which actually indicates that there are biological effects from the radiation emitted by wireless devices including damage to DNA and evidence for increased risk of cancer and other substantial health consequences. The public the world over has been misled by this reporting. And they're being misled by... Journalists like Joe McFarlane, David O. Carpenter, MD, Director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the University of Albany, says some bioeffects and health effects are shown to occur as several hundred thousand times below the existing public safety limits. As I said earlier, the official limits are only the official limits. It doesn't mean they're in any way safe. There's a couple of articles here, one of which... You may not be surprised to know by now, is in the Daily Mail. I'll start with one from the Telegraph. This was published in May 2014. Do mobile phones cause brain tumours? When Neil Whitfield was diagnosed with a brain tumour at the age of 44, he left the consulting room in shock. He had been struggling with debilitating headaches, short-term memory loss and fatigue for months and faced a brutal choice between risky surgery or leaving the tumour where it was and coming to terms with the fact that it would kill him within five years. But what also shocked him was his doctor's theory about what had caused the tumour. He said he was absolutely convinced it was my mobile phone he said he was absolutely convinced it was my mobile phone use, said Mr Whitfield from Wigan, Lancashire. He told me that mobile phones were going to be the smoking gun of the 21st century in terms of cancers. I hadn't even thought about it before. At the time of his diagnosis in 2001, Mr Whitfield was working as a sales manager and had been a regular user of mobile phones since 1995. He never used one again. After surgery, he was left deaf in one ear and suffered some facial paralysis, but has been given the all clear. His employers, however, did not see eye to eye with his decision not to use a mobile. I basically got managed out, he says. When I went back to work and explained that the tumour had been near my ear, they said, well, can't you just put the phone to your other ear? It was ludicrous. These are people working to sell phones to people saying that. I now run my own training agency without a mobile. It can be done, but we have all become so reliant on mobiles that we think we can't survive without them. His sons, aged 13 and 9, do not own mobiles and are not too bothered about their father's ban. If people ask, they just explain what happened to me, says Mr Whitfield. So many people don't know about the risks. If mobile phones were a food, they would have been taken off the shelves by now. Well, you'd think so, but when something serves the agenda, then often... Even if there's evidence to prove that it's bad for health, as there is with mobiles in terms of the radiation, it's still sold because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. He says, Mr Whitfield, I don't know any parent who would hand their child drugs and say, off you go, yet virtually every kid has a mobile. I find it terrifying. The article goes on. But just what the risks are for children is still open to fierce debate. Last week, the Department of Health announced that it had commissioned the world's largest study of the effects of mobile phone use. The two-year study of cognition, adolescence and mobile phones will look at 2,500 children aged 11 and 12. They will be asked about phone use and tested on functions such as memory and attention to see whether the use of mobiles has any impact. It has been suggested that children and teenagers could be more vulnerable to radio frequency exposure because their nervous systems are still developing. And especially with very young children, their skulls are thinner, so they're more open to the radiation. The article goes on. Around 70% of 11 and 12-year-olds in the UK now own a phone, rising to 90% of children over 14. Well, as I said, this was published in 2014. What must the figure be now? One recent phone app even encourages parents to download nursery rhymes and place the device on a child's pillow. A pillow. So they could be soothed to sleep with lullabies. And although the 2005 Stewart report on phone technology recommended that children under 16 should only use mobiles for essential calls, the reality is that most teenagers spend hours on them a week. So what are the risks? Experts may not agree on whether phones cause cancer, but there is a consensus that excessive use is leading to a rise in other related issues, such as repetitive strain injury, known as texting thumb by some doctors, and attention problems in some children in a lot of children, and although most studies have not found any firm link between mobile phone use and cancers or other health problems in children and adults, how does a journalist know that? 
Pressure groups and some scientists dispute those findings. Dennis Henshaw, Emeritus Professor at Bristol University and Honorary Scientific Director of the Children with Cancer UK charity is one of them. The dangers are being seriously underplayed, he says. We are seeing a rise in brain tumours in adults and children. And because brain tumours are relatively rare, we are talking small numbers, but the increase is there. Why should it come as any surprise that holding the equivalent of a small microwave oven to your ear should be a health risk? Professor Henshaw and others believe that mobile phone packaging should carry public health warnings rather than the advice being buried in manufacturer's manuals, and Mr Whitfield agrees. After I was diagnosed, I looked at my phone manual and very, very far down it says you should keep your phone at least 10mm away from your body at all times. At least. He goes on to say hardly anyone reads those manuals, but even the manufacturers are admitting there is a safety issue here. Professor Henshaw also believes the growth in mobile phone use over the past decade means that most scientific studies have yet to record the real effects on health. But Professor Anthony Swerdlow of the Institute of Cancer Research disputes the claim that there has been an increase in brain tumours in children, saying Office for National Statistics figures show only a small increase in much older people. We can't be sure, but there is no evidence to show there is a link with brain cancers. We can't be sure, he says, as... A professor of the Institute of Cancer Research. That's reassuring, isn't it? The biggest study to date also failed to resolve the issue. The Interphone study, published in 2010, studied 13,000 adult users in 13 countries over 10 years. Researchers found that heavy users had a slightly higher risk of glioma as a type of brain tumour, but concluded that they had neither proved a link with brain cancers nor demonstrated that there was not a risk. Other scientists are not so sure. A Swedish researcher, Professor Leonard Hardell, has published a controversial paper that found children who use mobiles are five times more likely to develop brain tumours, although his results have been questioned by many scientists. Probably means he's saying something right then. That's often the case. A French study published last week also found that heavy users of mobile phones may be at higher risk of gliomas and meningiomas. Meningiomas are a type of brain tumour, also. Researchers from the University of Bordeaux compared 447 adults with the tumours with a control group of almost a 1,000 healthy people. They found that people who used their phones for more than 15 hours a month over five years were up to three times more likely to develop the tumours compared with those who rarely used a mobile. But even the researchers admitted that the findings did not take into account other factors. Phones and how we use them have also changed in the past 10 years. Most teenagers are now more likely to be texting and messaging than holding a device to their ear, and new smartphones emit fewer radio waves. In 2011, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer classified mobiles as a possible carcinogen. You see that a lot. Things that are harmful to health are classified as possible because they know that people, when they read the word possible, will think, oh, that probably means there's nothing to worry about then and they know that people want there to be nothing to worry about or nothing to address so if you use the word possible then people would take that as meaning nothing to address ah well it's only possible isn't it so no problem that's the mind game the decision was highly controversial some members of the scientific committee walked out of the proceedings in protest this is talking about the classification of mobiles as a possible carcinogen. And again, highly controversial. Well, often highly controversial when it comes to making a claim about the safety of something means that the claim has more validity than a controversy would suggest. Not always, but in some cases. The article goes on. But certain countries are taking action. France has banned mobiles and Wi-Fi in primary schools, while phone shops in Canada are required to hand out safety leaflets. Last year, the Italian Supreme Court ruled that a businessman's brain tumour had been caused by mobile phone use in a case that could pave the way for European-wide class actions. The case has yet to be resolved. But it does. But the mobile phone industry remains buoyant. A large number of studies have been performed over the last two decades to assess whether mobile phones are a potential health risk, says John Cook, executive director of the Mobile Operators Association. To date, no adverse health effects have been established, says John Cook. For parents, the health risks are important, but a straw poll of mothers on Facebook last week found that many are more concerned about another impact of phones on their children. 
For parents, the health risks are important, but a straw poll of mothers on Facebook last week found that many are more concerned about another impact of phones on their children. My son and his friends are messaging on their phones all the time, said Haley Brown, mother of a 17-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter. I do worry about the health risks, but I'm also concerned that they are losing the art of normal social interaction. It seems to be the only way they can communicate now. Well, that's a good point. The art of conversation is dying in the face of technology. This is the second article I mentioned. This was in the Daily Mail. Spending six hours a day on my mobile gave me a brain tumour, claims business executive 43, who has now been given just three years to live. This was published in 2015. A businessman battling a deadly brain tumour believes spending up to six hours a day on his mobile phone is giving him cancer. After going to hospital with a bad headache, Ian Phillips was given the devastating news he had a lemon-sized brain tumour and has just three years to live. The 43-year-old claims his cancer was caused by excessive use of his mobile phone, as his job as an operations manager for a large firm required him to spend more than 100 hours a month making calls. As well as undergoing chemotherapy and radiotherapy treatment in a bid to beat the cancer, he is receiving alternative medicine, has changed his diet and regularly exercises. He also launched a campaign to make others aware of the risks of using mobile phones, which he says are particularly dangerous for children. Mr Phillips, a former rugby player, said, I spent my working life on my mobile. I would have two-hour conference calls some days. My ear would be red when I left work at the end of the day. I didn't think about what it was doing to my brain. Mr. Phillips, head of healthcare diagnostic imaging for a large global firm, was hit by a sudden blinding headache and drove himself to A&E in the middle of the night. He was given a brain scan on an MRI machine which he had installed himself just two weeks earlier at the University Hospital of Wales, Cardiff. The scan revealed a grade 3 brain tumour the size of a lemon and Mr. Phillips underwent a nine-hour emergency operation to remove most of it. But he was given the horrific news that the brain cancer could not be cured and was advised to make the most of the little time he had left. Mr. Phillips said, I was devastated. The first thing I asked the doctors was what had caused it, but I knew right from the start that it was due to my excessive use of my mobile. I was on it all the time. I have spent a lot of time since researching this, and the number of brain tumours is going up. I am really concerned about young children using mobiles. Their skulls are softer and radiation from these devices can reach their brains more easily. Mr Phillips has now invested in a shiny gold hand receiver which he plugs into his mobile to make him receive calls, meaning he doesn't have to hold the phone to his ear. He said, I bought a gold one to draw attention to the potential dangers in mobiles. Strangers ask me why I use a handheld receiver and I tell them they would too if they had been diagnosed with a brain tumour. I tell people that I am convinced my cancer was caused by using my mobile up to 6 hours a day. Even my doctors won't argue with me when I tell them how much time I was spending on it at work. Mr Phillips estimates he was talking for more than 100 hours a month on his Blackberry because of his high pressure drop. He said I was a successful rugby player, extremely fit and I never got ill, not even with a cold, but now I have this. The irony is that the tumour was discovered on one of the diagnostic machines that I installed at hospitals all over the country. Mr Phillips of Cardiff hopes to beat the cancer with a combination of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, alternative medicine. Well, chemotherapy, which kills cells, not just cancer cells. And, and the question is, have enough cancer cells been killed before you kill too many healthy cells? And radiotherapy, which is radiation, and the cause of cancer is radiation. It's madness. And with all the money that's been donated to cancer research over the decades, and that's the two main forms of treatment that we have, is it not more likely that a cure is being found and suppressed rather than with all the money over all the decades, no cure has been found, and they've given us two forms of treatment, both of which can cause cancer, especially radiotherapy, as the two main forms of treatment to cure cancer. Mr Phillips of Cardiff hopes to beat the cancer with a combination of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, alternative medicine, diet and sheer bloody-mindedness. I like that last one. He said, they gave me three years to live, but I will prove them wrong time and again. The tumour has shrunk to nothing once, but it's back now and I'm having chemo again. But I'm convinced that it will disappear again before my current course of chemotherapy is complete. Mr. Phillips has been forced to quit his £110,000 a year job because of his illness. The former carefully RFC second row forward now spends his time with his girlfriend and his parents, Norman and Leslie, mainly watching rugby and visiting the gym four times a week. He has launched a campaign to highlight the dangers of mobile phones, convinced he can inform others of the risks. He has persuaded Welsh rugby stars Rhys Priestland and Jonathan Davies to shave their heads for the Brains Trust charity he supports. He said, I will beat my tumour, but in the meantime I need to get the message across that mobile phones can be dangerous. I used mine too much, I know that, but people need to be made aware of the risks and start switching to handheld receivers It could save their lives. And there's a quote 
I found from Dr. Barry Trower, a retired British military intelligence scientist. And this guy not only talks about the dangers of wireless radiation and wireless radiation communication, but he lives without technology. He's a man who practices what he preaches, so to speak. A retired British military intelligence scientist, and he says that we know that during the Cold War, women were experimented on to see the effect of low-level microwave radiation on women, and we know that 47.7% had miscarriages in the first eight weeks of pregnancy. And if you go on YouTube, he explains that in more detail. There's a video or videos you can find where he talks about that. There's a there's an abstract here from a study on the National Center for Biotechnology Information, in other words, biological technology, the U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health website. Electromagnetic hypersensitivity is a condition where people have sensitivity to electromagnetic fields. And some people claim that it's imagined, but, but this study says in 1970, a report from the former Soviet Union described the microwave syndrome among military personnel working with radio and radar equipment who showed symptoms that included fatigue, dizziness, headaches, problems with concentration and memory, and sleep disturbances. Similar symptoms were found in the 1980s among Swedes working in front of cathode ray tube monitors. Symptoms are reported in Finns with electromagnetic hypersensitivity being attributed to exposure to electromagnetic fields. A special concern is involuntary exposure to radio frequency, electromagnetic field, radiation from different sources. Most people are unaware of this type of exposure which has no smell, colour or visibility. There is an increase in concern that wireless use of laptops and iPads in Swedish schools where some have even abandoned textbooks will exacerbate the exposure to EMF. Well that's a good point. Kids are surrounded by Wi-Fi in school as they are surrounded by Wi-Fi at home. The results, this abstract says, in population-based surveys, the prevalence of EHS has ranged from 1.5% in Sweden to 13.3% in Taiwan. Provocation studies on EMF, a provocation study or test is a form of medical clinical trial whereby participants are exposed to either a substance or thing that is claimed to provoke a response or to a thing that they're told is something but it's not like a placebo test, basically, that kind of thing. Like a placebo test, that kind of thing. Provocation studies on EMF have yielded different results, ranging from where people with EHS cannot discriminate between an active RF signal, radio frequency signal, and placebo, to objectively observed changes following exposure and reactions of the pupil, changes in heart rhythm, damage to blood cells, and disturbed glucose metabolism in the brain. The two students and the teacher from the case reports showed similar symptoms while in school environments as those mentioned above. And the conclusion is it seems necessary to give an international classification of diseases to electromagnetic hypersensitivity syndrome to get it accepted as EMF-related health problems. The increasing exposure to RF, EMF, electromagnetic frequency, radio frequency, electromagnetic frequency, in schools is of great concern and needs better attention. Longer-term health effects are unknown. Parents, teachers and school boards have the responsibility to protect children from unnecessary exposure. And journalists like Joe McFarlane have a responsibility to research what they're saying before saying there's nothing to worry about, there's nothing to address here in articles for newspapers. And there's an article here on the California Department of Public Health website. CDPH issues guidelines on how to reduce exposure to radio frequency energy from cell phones. This was published on December 2017. As smartphone use continues to increase in the U.S., especially among children, the California Department of Public Health today issued guidance for individuals and families who want to decrease their exposure to radio frequency energy emitted from cell phones. Although the scientific community has not yet reached a consensus on the risk of cell phone use, research suggests long-term high use may impact human health. Although the science is still evolving, there are concerns among some public health professionals and members of the public regarding long-term high-use exposure to the energy emitted by cell phones, said CDPH Director and State Public Health Officer Dr. Karen Smith. We know that simple steps, such as not keeping your phone in your pocket and moving it away from your bed at night, can help reduce exposure for both children and adults. Cell phones emit radio frequency energy when they send and receive signals to and from cell towers and some scientists and public health officials believe this energy may impact human health. Meanwhile, cell phone use in the US has increased dramatically in recent years. 
children's brains develop through the teenage years and may be more affected by cell phone use, said Dr. Smith. Parents should consider reducing the time their children use cell phones and encourage them to turn the device off at night. And there's a quote here from Timothy Moynihan. This was in the Daily Mail article that I just read. He's a consultant in medical oncology at Mayo Clinic. And he says, as part of a quote in this article, for now, no one knows if cell phones are capable of causing cancer. Oh, I think some people do. And that's the point. Ultimately, it's known what the effect is of radiation from mobile phones, and that's why they operate on the frequency they do. It can't be revealed that mobiles and smartphones cause health problems. It can't be revealed that mobiles and smartphones cause health problems because of what it would mean for the elite's agenda if it was revealed. They need people not only using phones but being addicted to them for the transhumanist agenda, and many are globally. They need the radiation and health effects because of their depopulation agenda I mentioned many times before, and they need to create an irradiated environment which will mutate DNA to the frequency of the transhumanist cloud or smart grid of the transhumanist agenda. And they need to create a irradiated environment to mutate DNA so it can survive in the irradiated environment they need. So the truth has to be suppressed so the elite's agenda can succeed. Fake news. Statins don't work and can even kill. Statins, the cholesterol-lowering pills first introduced in the 1980s, are hotly debated. Today, they are prescribed to at least 8 million Britons in order to lower their heart attack risk. But over the past decade, a cottage industry driven by a small group of medically qualified skeptics. Medically qualified, note that, has grown up around the notion that statins don't prevent heart attacks so are a waste of time. They also claim that drug companies have downplayed the side effects of the drugs. There is no evidence of a single person suffering a heart attack or dying from not taking statins, claim one Dr. Asim Malhotra in a recent newspaper article. Well, I've talked about pharmaceutical medicine in episode 17. Dr. Asim Malhotra, who describes himself as one of the most influential cardiologists in Britain, broadly promotes the idea that diet alone is a better approach to improving heart health. In the US, leading anti-statin voice is Dr. Joseph Mercola, who has almost 2 million Facebook followers. He claims statins may actually make your heart health worse and only appear effective due to statistical deception. They increase your risk of serious diseases, including cancer. Meanwhile on YouTube, a video viewed a million times from Bob De Maria, a self-proclaimed doctor of natural health, claims that eating half a red apple or plum and some carrots every day halves cholesterol, making diet more effective than statins. It may sound like amusing nonsense, but one recent study found that heart disease patients who believe stories such as these and quit their drugs are only 20% more likely to die from their condition as a result. More than half of over 55 stopped taking statins after just one year, according to recent reports. Yet evidence from hundreds of thousands of statin users is overwhelming. The drugs do work, cutting heart attack and stroke risk significantly. Malhotra has been repeatedly criticised by the medical community for making unsubstantiated claims. In 2014, the British Medical Journal was condemned for publishing an article by him that suggested statins caused side effects in up to 20% of people, later revealed to have been overstated. Dr. Mercola has been repeatedly wrapped by US regulators, the Food and Drug Administration, for falsely claiming that the supplements he sells fight serious illnesses. In 2016, his business was forced to repay more than £4 million to customers after falsely claiming the indoor tanning devices it sold would slash customers' risk of cancer. Well, here's an article about the health risk of statins in relation to their likelihood to increase people's risk of incurable motor neurone disease by up to 100 times according to a study now what newspaper was this article published in at least the online version if not the physical paper in may this year it wouldn't be would it no it is you know it's a daily mail Statins may increase people's risk of incurable motor neurone disease by up to 100 times, study finds. Statins may increase people's risk of incurable motor neurone disease. New research suggests that drugs which combat high cholesterol make people up to 100 times more likely to suffer symptoms of the condition that famously affected the late professor Sir Stephen Hawkins, a study found. Lead author Professor Beatrice Gillom from the University of San Diego said these findings add to concerns about a possible connection between statin use and the development of MND. Until better evidence is available, prompt statin withdrawal should be considered. 
The article is on. Previous research suggests cholesterol may play a role in protecting people against MND. However, many scientists dispute this. At least 8 million adults in the UK take statins every day to reduce their risk of heart disease, while around 5,000 people suffer from MND. Well, I've talked about cholesterol in episode 29, and I've cited studies which paint a very different picture of cholesterol to the official version. The article goes on. Results further suggest statin users are between 9 and 100 times more likely to suffer from motor neuron disease symptoms with side effects depending on the type of medication they take. The researchers believe some people may be more vulnerable to the effects of statins than others. Dr. Nicholas Cole from the Motor Neuron Disease Association said previous studies have examined if taking statins is a risk factor for the development of the disease and whether they can influence the rate that MND progresses. In October 2012, a review of the six available scientific papers concluded that there was no definite association between statin use and MND incidence or progression, but a further investigation into this may provide another piece of the MND puzzle. The article goes on. Ashley Doggett, a senior cardiac nurse at the British Heart Foundation, added, As with all medications, there are potential side effects, but we know side effects from statins are thankfully rare. It is important to discuss with your doctor before stopping any medication, as this could put you at increased risk of heart attack or stroke. The article goes on. The article goes on. The researchers analysed records from the US drug approving body, the FDA, on medication side effects. Their findings were published in the journal Drug Safety. This comes after research released last July suggested statins have no consistent evidence of improving heart attack patient survival. Taking a daily statin for five years after a heart attack extends your life by just four days, a study by the Frimley Health NHS Foundation Trust found. The researchers add statins supposed benefits are based on cherry-picked science and are unjustly promoted by pharmaceutical giants. Heart attack survivors should instead aim to improve their health through diet and exercise, they add. Isn't that what Dr. Asim Malhotra said the idea that diet alone is a better approach to improving heart health than statins it is you know this doctor that joe mcfarlane is writing about in the article where she's trashing the idea that statins don't work fake news the biggest lie of all according to this article no discussion of fake health news could ignore the anti-vaccination lobby distrust of vaccines can be traced back to the 1790s and the discovery of the first smallpox vaccination by edward jenner who stumbled upon it by noticing that milkmaids who had caught cowpox did not catch smallpox people began conflating the vaccination with the cowpox virus with some believing a dose of the vaccine could turn you into a cow more recently there was the mmr scandal of the late 1990s in which a now discredited study by british doctor andrew wakefield linked the jab to the development of autism in children today search the term vaccination on facebook and streams of videos and images warning of the fatal risk of child vaccinations including mmr appear and far from being consigned to history wakefield is arguably more influential today than ever in 2016 he released a vaxxed v-a-double-x-e-d from cover-up to catastrophe a film he directed which claims the u.s government covered up the skyrocketing increase in autism caused by immunizations it earned more than one million pound in donations mostly to wakefield's company how many of those donations would have come from parents who believe vaccines have caused autism in their child i know a couple who believe a vaccine has harmed their child and there are many out there doesn't mean they're all right i'm not saying any of them are right in terms of the individual cases what i am saying is questions need to be asked about vaccines rather than just a medical system trashing the idea and dismissing it and ridiculing anybody who questions it and striking off people who work within it questioning it if there's nothing wrong with vaccines what's the problem with people questioning it if vaccines are safe then they should stand up to scrutiny if people do their own research into claims against vaccines then they'll know what's fake news and what's news the article goes on and donald trump has tweeted about the supposed link between vaccines and autism more than 20 times one reads healthy young child goes to doctor gets pumped with massive shot of many vaccines doesn't feel good and changes autism many such cases this has been shared almost 14,000 times the damage has been done the government estimates that 2,000 deaths could be avoided every year if more children and older people were vaccinated well they're the last people to take advice from on anything Yet a recent study at King's College London found that only just over half of British patients asked were willing to have their child vaccinated. Well, maybe more people are doing their own research beyond the official line. 
Writing in the journal Nature, Professor Larson says the next major outbreak of a fatal strain of influenza or something else will not be due to a lack of preventive technologies. Instead, emotional contagion, digitally enabled, could erode trust in vaccines so much as to render them moot. This deluge of conflicting and manipulated information on social media should be recognised as a global public health threat. Well, it's worth pointing out that the medical system and the pharmaceutical cartel make their money from illness, not health. The more illness there is, the more money they make. The immune system can deal with a whole variety of problems without the need to be vaccinated against them. But the more toxins you put in the body from food and drink and vaccines, the less effective the immune system is. And you look at the amount of vaccines given to toddlers and babies in the first two or three years of life. What's that going to do to the immune system? Speaking of toxins, you look at what's in vaccines. Formaldehyde, which is cancer-causing toxic and affects the nervous system and DNA, aluminium, which has been linked to Alzheimer's, and mercury. And there's an article here about mercury. This is from the United Nations Environment Programme website and the Minamata Convention on Mercury. The Minamata Convention on Mercury is a global treaty to protect human health and the environment from the adverse effects of mercury. It was agreed at the fifth session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee on Mercury in Geneva, Switzerland on Saturday the 19th of January 2013 and adopted later that year on the 10th of October 2013 at a diplomatic conference, Conference of Plenipotentiaries held in Kumamoto, Japan. The Minamata Convention entered into force on the 16th of August 2017 on the 90th day after the date of deposit of the 50th Instrument of Ratification, Acceptance, Approval or Accession. The Convention draws attention to a global and ubiquitous metal that, while naturally occurring, is broad use as an everyday object and is released to the atmosphere, soil and water from a variety of sources. Major highlights of the Minamata Convention include a ban on new mercury mines, the phase-out of existing ones, the phase-out and phase-down of mercury use in a number of products and processes, control measures on emissions to air and on releases to land and water, and a regulation of the informal sector of artisanal and small-scale gold mining. But it's alright to inject it in your body. There's an article here about formaldehyde. This is from the Brown University website. Formaldehyde damages proteins, not just DNA. Formaldehyde, a common toxicant and carcinogen recently subjected to new federal regulations, may be more dangerous than previously thought a new study suggests. The capacity of formaldehyde, a chemical frequently used to manufacture goods such as automotive parts and wood products to damage DNA, interfere with cell replication and cause cancer, inspired new federal regulations this summer. But a new study in the American Journal of Pathology finds that the substance may pose a broader threat to health than previously thought by injuring cells in another way. We think formaldehyde is a much more dangerous toxicant in the sense that it is not only damaging DNA, but there is also extensive damage to proteins, said corresponding author Anatoly Zhukovich, professor of pathology and laboratory medicine in the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. On one hand, damage to proteins in the nucleus can impair the stress responses to and repair of DNA damage, and on the other hand, accumulation of damaged proteins could contribute directly to malfunctioning and killing of cells. The findings may substantiate questions about whether formaldehyde adversely affects the nervous system as has been seen in some animal studies, Zhukovic said. In several experiments described in the new paper, Zhukovic's team at Brown University showed that exposure of three types of human lung cells to formaldehyde set off a sequence of damage and cellular responses similar to what happens when cells are exposed to excessive heat. They saw telltale indications of widespread accumulation of damaged proteins. These indications were the appearance of a specific set of protective processes that tried to clean up the damaged proteins before their build-up could kill the cells. Zhukovic first got the idea that formaldehyde might damage proteins when his laboratory was studying how cells respond to formaldehyde's DNA damage. Their data showed that a key anti-cancer protein in this response was reduced at high doses when its presence should be scaling up to meet the increasing formaldehyde exposure. In the new study, Zhukovic, lead authors Sarah Ortega, Atienza and co-authors Blazed Rubis and Caitlin McCarthy therefore looked for signs of protein damage and saw them clearly. They observed that after brief formaldehyde exposure, cells exhibited a massive polyubiquitination, which is the binding of a certain type of molecule to the same target protein, what are known as ubiquitin molecules. Ubiquitin is a small regulatory protein found in most tissues of eukaryotic organisms and eukaryotic organisms 
or an organism with a complex cell or cells in which the genetic material is organized into a membrane by a nucleus or nucleon. The nucleus has two major functions. It stores the cell's hereditary material or DNA and it coordinates the cell's activities. So they observed that after brief formaldehyde exposures, cells exhibited a massive polyubiquitination, a process of making damaged proteins for disposal, lest they accumulate. Shortly after the polyubiquitination process began, then then observed the heat shock response as a new set of proteins during the massive cleanup effort. Ultimately, many of the cells died despite the activation of cells' defense responses. In an experiment where they purposely disabled one of the key heat shock response proteins, cells were even more likely to die. Neither the polyubiquitination response nor the heat shock response occurred in control cells that did not have any contact with formaldehyde. Meanwhile, the scientists also subjected cells to substances known to damage DNA but not proteins and found that this did not unleash the polyubiquitination or heat shock responses. That suggests that those reactions were not responses to formaldehyde's DNA damage. Zhitkovic said the findings might explain why formaldehyde may be toxic to the nervous system. Neurons are a cell involved with transmitting nerve impulses, a nerve cell don't divide or replicate DNA so they are not as vulnerable to the kind of damage formaldehyde does to DNA, but they are especially vulnerable to accumulations of damaged and misfolded proteins. That's what happens in Alzheimer's, for example, and that's exactly what Zhitkovic's team has found formaldehyde causes in cells. Animal studies, he noted, have shown that formaldehyde exposure undermines brain functions such as memory and learning. But it's okay to have formaldehyde injected into your body, apparently. There's a study here. This is on the National Center for Biotechnology Information, U.S. National Library of Medicine, National Institutes of Health website, as is the next study I'm going to feature after this one. Predicting post-vaccination autoimmunity, who might be at risk? Autoimmunity is the system of immune responses of an organism against its own healthy cells and tissues. Any disease that results from such an aberrant immune response is termed an autoimmune disease. This study says adverse effects, including autoimmune conditions, may occur following vaccinations. And the other one here, which is relative trends in hospitalizations and mortality among infants by the number of vaccine doses in age based on the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, 1990 to 2010. In this study, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System database was investigated. Cases that specified either hospitalization or death were identified among 38,801 reports of infants. Based on the types of vaccines reported, the actual number of vaccine doses administered from 1 to 8 was summed for each case. And it says, in 1986, Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, requiring healthcare providers to report suspected vaccine reactions to a centralized reporting system. As a result, the VAERS Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. The VAERS system, co-sponsored by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Food and Drug Administration, was established in 1990. VAERS is a post-marketing safety surveillance program that collects information about possible adverse reactions that occur after the administration of vaccines licensed for use in the United States. VAERS receives approximately 30,000 reports annually. Since 1990, VAERS has received over 350,000 reports, most of which describe mild side effects such as fever and local reactions. About 13% of all reactions are classified as serious, involving life-threatening conditions, hospitalization, permanent disability or death. By monitoring such events, VAERS helps to identify unusual patterns of reports and important safety concerns. And it says... Since VAERS is a passive system, it is inherently subject to under-reporting. For example, a confidential study conducted by Connaught Laboratories, a vaccine manufacturer, indicated that a 50-fold under-reporting of adverse events is likely. According to David Kessler, former commissioner of the FDA, only about 1% of serious events, adverse drug reactions, are reported. Less serious vaccine adverse events and more underreported than more serious vaccine adverse events. So what's the real figure? And part of this study mentions some of the ingredients of vaccines. I mentioned a few just now. All these articles will be in the description of the episode when I upload the episode to Podomatic, the host website. And I came across an interesting statistic, an interesting fact, the other day, before I started researching for this episode, which is... 
that the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program in America is paid out under the radar, of course, in the sense that it's not been as publicized as it should be, approximately $3.9 billion, and that's from their website. Now, of course, some people will be trying to claim money for the sake of it, and there's shades of grey, but that's a lot of money to pay out for something that's supposed to be safe, and officially is safe. Now, I'm not saying for a second that anyone should take what I say as meaning they don't have to consult their doctor. I'm not saying that. Consult your doctor if you feel that's what you should do. All I'm doing is sharing information. People make of it what they will. People can come to their own conclusions about vaccines. People can come to their own conclusions about mobile phone radiation. All I'm doing is sharing information that is not circulated in the mainstream. And then people come to their own conclusions. Well, the author of this article will be totally clueless about successful alternative forms of treatment and the veracity of alternative claims about health. And it seems totally clueless about conflicting articles from earlier this year in the same newspaper as the article she's written. All she's done is taken claims from experts and repeated them because they're a mainstream journalist. So that's what they do. And this is an important point. Mainstream journalists perceive everything from the mainstream official narrative perspective. Doctors and mainstream scientists must know because they're doctors and mainstream scientists. Well, the doctors and mainstream scientists are themselves taking the official version from the drug companies and from the mainstream scientific orthodoxy, which rules their perceptions for a lifetime. Those others whose perceptions make up the mainstream scientific orthodoxy have been through the same system of the education system and then further education and that has to a large extent formed their perceptions. So what you've got is multi-generational cross-confirmation to each other that their perspective is correct because it's what official sources say and they must know because they're official sources. So it just goes on like a hamster's wheel, generation after generation. When you do your own research, however, you find that actually other official sources say the opposite a lot of the time and that actually there is evidence and information to the contrary but only if you have an open mind and explore beyond the official publicized narrative and that's all Joe McFarlane had to do before writing this article and that's why I do pay-per-view so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context and connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye